in, in regard to migration, I wanted my book to help readers, European readers, see what was the end of their fork when it comes to migration. Um, I wanted to critique Europe, Europe's militarised hard borders and draw up an on-the-spot picture of their impact, frequently disastrous impact, on migrant rights and human rights. Europe's physical boundaries are the places where the tragic, frequently tragic human consequences of managed migration are most visible. And it also seemed to me that these borders provide a useful vantage point from which to view the political forces that have made these borders possible. So I spoke to border guards, police, politicians um, and migrants in um, detention centres to look at how this border regime functioned. I spoke to people who in various ways have challenged these borders, that includes migrants and refugees who have crossed these borders without permission, to activists, cultural activists, um, solidarity activists, NGOs, people in NGOs and individuals who are working in solidarity work of various kinds with migrants, often in um, or close to these borders. So I thought um, what would be most useful today would be to sketch out for you some of my own observations and conclusions that I reached in my book and then see what perspectives you can bring um, from your own disciplines and areas of research. So the militarisation of Europe's borders, first thing to note is that it's part of a global phenomenon, it's not just European. In recent years, states have fortified their borders, states across the world have fortified their borders with new physical barriers and personnel. For example, here in, um, at the border between India and Bangladesh. Or here at the US-Mexico border. Or in Israel's um, border in the Sinai Desert. This new fence has just been completed in the last year or so. And also closer to home. Across the world, governments have increasingly sought to acquire the same powers to scrutinise and exclude unwanted entry that once belonged to the fortified city-states of medieval Europe. This process isn't limited to states. Today, borders can be found inside cities and neighbourhoods, in the security wars of Baghdad, in gated communities in Florida and many other places, in the so-called anti-Roma wall that was built by the town council of Ostrovani in Slovakia, these borders and barriers each have their own justifications, security, anti-terrorism, crime prevention, lifestyle protection, immigration enforcement and control. But all of them are part of a global phenomenon that is at first sight at odds with the borderless rhetoric that once accompanied the end of the Cold War. In those days, in the early 90s, the collapse of communism and the new global economic arrangements that were coming into place were presented as positive events, in the West at least, Globalisation would create level economic playing fields, we were told, and integrate the most distant countries and peoples into new cycles of production and consumption. National borders would melt away or become irrelevant, and militarised boundaries like the Berlin Wall would become a historical anachronism. Instead, what we've seen is a seeming paradox. Greater political and economic integration between states, accompanied by a new attempt to transform borders into impermeable barriers against certain categories of people considered to be harmful dangerous or simply incompatible with particular countries or national communities. This paradox is particularly striking in Europe. On the one hand, Europe has created the Schengen area and established a zone of free movement that includes more than 400 million EU citizens. 
Since the signing of the Schengen Agreement at the village of Schengen in 1986, European governments and the institutional machinery of the EU have succeeded in dismantling national border controls that had once seemed to be a permanent feature of the continent's political landscape. At the same time, the Schengen process has resulted in one of the toughest and most stringent border regimes in the world. The creation of the Schengen space of freedom, security and justice was predicated on the notion of compensatory borders in which the removal of border checks within the EU would be matched by a hardening of controls at the EU's new external borders. The main focus of these efforts has been the prevention of undocumented illegal migration, a category that includes economic migrants, so-called economic migrants, and refugees and asylum seekers. This militarization is reflected in physical barriers such as the electronic fences at the Spanish exclaves in Futa and Melilla in Morocco. One thing, a point to bear in mind about these um, fences, the fences that you find in Futa in, in Morocco. I mean, I, before I went there, I'd often read about these fences. And so I kind of knew what to expect when I arrived. But to actually see them is really quite stunning. Um, you can see here, um, these are the kind of barriers that have been put in place. It's worth remembering that before Schengen, in the 1980s, the actual border, as it was then, between um, these Spanish exclaves, that are basically a legacy of Spain's colonial history, consisted of just a few rows of barbed wire fence. It was almost nothing. Now you have these huge fences that have gone up to about 20, 30 feet, um, and they have an incredible kind of array of uh, uh, techn technological controls um, attached to them, cameras, sensors, sound sensors, movement sensors. You have this thing here, on the, um, on the left, the tree-dimensional fence. Um, so basically what happens is you've got these two big fences in the middle of this tree-dimensional fence. If you were a migrant and you managed to get over the first fence, very unlikely, but if you did, you then have about two minutes to get over the space and get over the second fence before the civil guard or the police came to that area. Um, the tree-dimensional fence, that thing there, will snag people's legs and hold them. And while that happens, that automatically triggers a pepper spray in the face. Um, now, the point about these controls is they're entirely to deal with migrants. They have no other function. Um, they're not going to keep out criminals, drug smugglers, or terrorists. It's just for migrants. And it is a direct consequence of Schengen. So, other countries have experienced something similar. Um, this is the tiered border enforcement model drawn up by the Slovakian border police at its 80 mile eastern border with Ukraine um, that I was shown when I went to the border town, the Slovakian border town of Sobrancha in 2010. Um, all this was constructed with, um, with Schengen funds following Slovakia's formal integration into Schengen in 2007 and once again it was done with a specific intention of sealing this tiny little uh, 80 kilometer strip that was seen as a major portal for undocumented migration coming from Ukraine, through Ukraine and other countries into Europe. So these physical controls are one component of um, Europe's border regime, but the border enforcement, Europe's border enforcement program also extends outwards beyond Europe through offshore maritime border controls that extend right up to the borders of migrant producing countries um, through um, naval deployments, for example, like we've seen here in West Africa, which really raise the question not just of um, whether people are being kept out, 
but whether people are actually being kept in. Um, externalised immigration controls have ex effectively extended Europe's borders not only into um, neighbouring countries like Morocco, Ukraine, Libya, Tunisia, but even further afield, right into the Sahara and beyond, through the deployment of airline liaison and immigration officers in foreign airports and ports, military and police assistance to countries in the Sahel and further into Africa, through the involvement of neighbouring countries such as Gaddafi, neighbouring regimes such as Gaddafi and Ben Ali in Tunisia in enforcing the EU's immigration restrictions. So, in addition to some 400,000 European police and border guards, the EU has also created the European Border Agency Frontex to coordinate the securitization of immigration hotspots such as the Evros border in Greece, which you see here. Um, technology has also become a key component of um, Europe's border enforcement program, which is really probably the most extensive and far-reaching um, program of border enforcement in history. Um, you can see some of these technological controls here with the um, integrated exterior vigilance system, as it's called. It's a com combination of radar and cameras established by um, the Spanish government in the Strait of Gibraltar. Um, this system was constructed in the first decade of this century, and before that, um, once again, it was, it was constructed in order to stop um, undocumented migration that began to kind of increase in the 1990s. In those days, the civil guard would try and detect these, um, these um, crossings from Morocco across the strait by binoculars, basically, and they'd miss a lot. Um, so basically, when the on, on moonless nights, people would make their crossings and a lot of them would get through. But now with this system, um, that simplified things a lot and um, it did, it did um, succeed in its um, intentions. Migration has dropped off a lot in Spain in the first decade of this century, partly as a consequence of these controls, although it's actually increased in other areas, which is something we'll talk about later. So this CIVE is just one, one part of this kind of um, fixation with technologizing the Europe's borders, which is also something we see in other countries as well, in Australia and the United States, a similar process. The EU currently has a whole series of research projects into a surveillance and identification technologies, biometrics, robotic border controls, fingerprint databases, and the use of unmanned aerial vehicles in border surveillance for the purpose of detecting or providing situational awareness, as they call it, of um, unauthorised border crossings. Immigration enforcement also extends inwards in the form of internal borders, um, which consist of bureaucratic paper walls that basically run right through neighbourhoods and cities, um, which exclude migrants and asylum seekers from rights associated with national citizenship and leave them stranded, in some cases for years, in a legal no-man's land this internal border is also manifest in laws and restrictions such as the Dublin Convention that confines asylum seekers to particular countries. Um, the Dublin Convention, in theory, was created to stop the, the phenomenon known as asylum shopping, um, whereby um, asylum seekers who were refused um, refugee status in one country would then go to another or even multiple countries. But what's actually happened in practice, the Dublin Convention, because um, most, most people who apply for asylum do it in the first country they come to, which is usually one of the EU's external border countries, if those countries um, don't recognise um, 
the principle of refugee protection in practice. Everybody accepts it in principle. It's another matter in practice. A country like Greece, for example, um, Greece um, is a signatory to the Geneva Convention and basically subscribes to all the EU's um, uh, principles on, on asylum and refugees, but they hardly ever give status. So what, what happens um, over the last five or six years, Greece has become one of the main points of entry for undocumented migration coming into Europe. But most of those people, if they, if, they, if they actually apply for asylum in Greece, they won't get it. And yet they can't go anywhere else. So what actually happens is Greece has become a kind of migrant trap. Migrants um, will stay there and they might, go, they might go into detention for six months. They may, they'll be released and they'll be told um, to go. But they're not told how they can go or where they can go. Mostly they can't afford to go back where they came from. It's often too dangerous anyway for them to make that journey. And they can't go forward. Some will try. They'll try and get out through port cities like Igomenita um, and try and get to Italy. But the controls there are very, very strong. So what actually happens? Um, basically, Greece becomes like a giant prison um, with tens of thousands of people. No one actually knows how many uh, living there without um, any civil or legal rights of any kind. And um, this is partly being done because this is, what the, this is the position that the Greek government is taking and has been taking for some time. But it's also because um, the European Union wants it to happen. Um, the European Union was aware that Greece, um, the, the asylum procedures in Greece were very, very primitive. It did very little to do anything about it because one of the um, aspects of European border enforcement is it's an unacknowledged policy of deterrence. Very few governments will say we're making life as harsh as possible in order to stop people coming and to stop people following the example of people who have come. Very few governments will actually say that outright. But in, in practice, that is what happens. And I've seen evidence of it all over um, the continent, both at the borders and also inside um, European cities. So um, this, this um, internal border is also reinforced by pan-European police cooperation, the involvement of various law enforcement agencies such as Europol and Interpol in migration control, the use of databases such as the vast uh, Schengen information system which um, compiles huge names, uh, millions of names now of um, persons of interest which also include asylum seekers as well as uh, criminals, people who've stolen cars, whatever. Um, the internal border is also manifest in police ID checks on the street which basically um, will often make migrants very keen not to be on the street and will keep them in certain areas and will keep them in a state of constant uh, insecurity, never knowing whether, whether if they do go out on the street they'll be stopped and then arrested and deported. Um, and also in immigration raids on workplaces and homes. So this is a vast and complex system of exclusion and control and it has had devastating consequences for undocumented migrants. Since 1988, nearly 15,000 people have died trying to get into Europe, um, mostly trying to cross um, the EU's maritime borders in Greece and in the Strait, and um, trying to get to places like Lampedusa from, from Libya and Tunisia and so on. So others, other migrants have killed themselves inside European territory because they were due to be deported and didn't want to go back. Um, in many European countries, migrants have been forced into a state of permanent destitution, sometimes street destitution, and sometimes just basically living on people's floors. Once again, in some, in some cases for years, um, in, my, in the research that I did on the issue of destitution, I found people, for example, in Leeds who'd spent more than a decade 
basically living in shelters or living in streets, living on the floors of people's houses, with no real way of um, getting out of that situation. And um, I've seen that situation replicated in other places. In Rome, there are thousands of migrants in the same situation. Once again, the question is, is this deliberate or is it just something that's allowed to happen? It's not always clear. I mean, sometimes people are left in that situation because of cumbersome and clumsy bureaucratic procedures. For example, in Italy, it it can take something like seven years sometimes before your asylum claim is actually processed. But during that time, you you can't work and you get no legal assistance. So you just have to manage for, could be seven years, could be more, could be less. So um, again and again, the EU's border enforcement program has created situations in which migrants are exposed to the possibility of death or serious injury or find themselves stranded in physical or legal no-man's lands where they have no help and no rights except what is provided by NGOs and charities. Europe may not want people to die, but in practice, death often functions as the kind of collateral damage of border control. Um, It is just something that is accepted as a tragic inevitability as the the deaths of civilians in wartime is often um, treated as a tragic inevitability. So uh, the effects of deterrence, this this unacknowledged policy of deterrence, are particularly dire in Greece, um, which has been for some time now the main point of entry for undocumented migration into Europe. Migrants have either crossed from the Turkish coast trying to get to um, islands in the Aegean, or more recently they've tried to cross the Evros border with Turkey. As as an outlying border country, Greece has effectively been tasked by the EU with preventing migrants who enter Greece from going any further. And they do this part very well. As I said before, the actual the border, when, when migrants try and get from um, port cities in Greece to Italy, it's very, very difficult because those ports are very, very tightly controlled and they've become more so in recent years. Whereas it's not that difficult to actually get into Greece. I mean, it's not the easiest thing in the world, but it can be done and it is being done. Um, So the result in Greece is an unacknowledged humanitarian disaster in which tens of thousands of people are effectively trapped in a country that doesn't want them but which they aren't allowed to leave. And uh, many are held in detention in this kind of uh, revolving door of detention. Six months in detention, released, arrested again. Another six months in detention, released, arrested again. And so it goes on. Those who'd managed to avoid detention, especially in recent years, or this was already evident even when I was last in Greece, which was in uh, 2011, are relentlessly and often brutally harassed by the Greek police, um, a police force which has a particularly dismal reputation for racist violence. Once again, Europe may not have wanted this situation, but it hasn't done that much to stop it. So the question is, why is all this happening? Why are European governments, why have they gone to such extraordinary lengths in their attempts to manage migration? I argue in my book that there are various reasons. The question of security is clearly one factor. Even before the 9-11 attacks and the ongoing state of emergency that we've seen since, European governments were already anxious about what they call the dark side of globalisation. And they presented borders as essential instruments for preventing a whole array of of, um, of harmful people and commodities, terrorists, organised crime and undocumented migrants and even asylum seekers are all included within this amorphous and elastic notion of security 
that often accompanies official discourse on borders. They're routinely listed along with terrorists, gangsters, human traffickers as smugglers, as harmful, dangerous people and a potential source of disorder and chaos. So borders have become kind of instruments for managing this anticipated chaos, the friction produced by globalisation. I also argue that European immigration enforcement is also driven by cultural and racial fears and assumptions about the potential impact of an unlimited influx of poor and mostly non-white migrants on European identity and European lifestyles. The human tsunami, this was a phrase that was used by Silvio Berlusconi to describe the threat of limitless third world immigration into Europe. And this is a vision which is continually present in anti-immigration politics throughout Europe and the Western world, in fact. Whether in, um, in Switzerland or in the United States. These tsunami scenarios are not just security related. Immigration from certain quarters is often depicted not just as a threat to European jobs and lifestyles, but to the very existence of Europe. Europe European civilization and its different components. This is a prospect summed up by this um, electoral poster from Berlusconi's former coalition partners, the Northern League. But it can be found amongst far-right and nativist parties across the Western world. Some years ago, the conservative political scientist Samuel Huntington wrote a book called Who Are We?, which expressed anxiety that the United States risked being transformed into something that he called Mexamerica as a result of Latino immigration. Similar fears in Europe have been directed towards Muslim migrants or simply towards migrants in general. Mainstream politicians tend to avoid intemperate talk about immigration tsunamis and invasions, at least in public. They prefer to talk about migrants abusing our borders of their desire to address public concerns about immigration or save migrants from exploitation by human traffickers. But these anxieties and assumptions about national and European identity and the assumptions about people considered to be alien to that identity are clearly significant factors in Europe's attempts to determine who enters and who stays, and not only amongst right-wing governments and political parties. So, on one hand, border control is seen as a guarantor of national privilege and an essential barrier against the human detritus produced by globalisation that Zygmunt Bowman once called surplus people. At the same time, the new, the new external borders of the European Union have become crucial to the whole European project. They are, to some extent, the continuation of an attempt to establish the geographical and political limits of Europe that has been going on for centuries. Europe's determination to reimpose its powers of control at the border has clearly been exacerbated and reinforced by the crisis in the Eurozone, with countries experiencing job losses, pensions cuts, cuts to public services across the board. Migrants have become scapegoats and pseudo-explanations for populist and far-right anti-immigration parties, and mainstream politicians have also sought to associate themselves with border enforcement regimes. As a result, governments across the continent have been pulling up the drawbridge, whether restricting certain services to undocumented migrants in health and education, or stepping up the pace of immigration raids and pursuing quota-driven deportations. Even centre-left politicians, such as Phil Woolis, 
are incre- have been increasingly keen to proclaim their toughness on immigration and demonstrate to the public that their borders or our borders are under control. All this has resulted in a new emphasis on the internal border, on reinforcing the internal border with stepped up deportations, raids, ID checks and repression. One of the first visits that I made when I began researching my book was to Calais um, back in 2009 and at that time it was only a few months after the um, French and British governments had had closed down the famous uh, jungle which is a big um, encampment which had about uh, uh, more than a thousand migrants living in shanty towns and improvised shelters um, on the outskirts of Calais. At the time this was presented as as a kind of major victory in the kind of fight against human trafficking and smugglers and so on, even though there was one important element left out, which is all those people who were kicked out had nowhere to live. Since then, um, the French police in Calais have been been waging what really amounts to a kind of war of attrition against all migrants coming into the city, which which consists of basically constantly harassing migrants wherever they're found, hunting them down in their squats, destroying their squats, um, tearing up their... um, tents if they have them, um, taking away their sleeping bags in the middle of winter, all this kind of thing goes on every day now and has been doing for basically ever since 2009. The idea, as the mayor of Calais once told me, the deputy mayor of Calais once said to me, he said, we just want to stop people coming here. And the interesting thing about this, it's typical about the way the EU conducts these kind of things and the way local authorities do it. On one hand, in the streets, you have the police and including permanent detachments of CRS riot police, who are not normally in Calais, but they are for this. They've been brought there specially to kind of stop, to, to basically go after migrants who come there. On one hand, you have that, this heavy-handed police presence. At the same time, the local authorities don't want people dying in their streets. So they allow local NGOs and charities to feed migrants. So you often have this bizarre situation. You have, local, you have NGOs um, providing soup kitchens um, two, twice a day, every day, and also providing showers for migrants um, as well. And yet migrants who go to get those meals might well be arrested by the police on their way to and from them. Or the police might even enter those compounds. So it's really giving with one hand and taking away with another. Um, And this is the way, this kind of thing happens quite a lot actually in in these border areas. Um, Does it work, you might ask? Well, it's certainly, there are certainly fewer migrants actually coming into Calais, but they actually, all that, what has actually happened is they've been dispersed along the coast of smaller settlements around Calais. In the, in basically, people try and avoid the police. They go and camp out in the countryside next to various lakes and so on. So the police go after them there and so on. It's what some people call the squeeze balloon effect. You squeeze it in one place and it just simply expands in another. So... Um, Other examples of this kind of intensified, the intensification of um, border enforcement in recent years. Um, In um, 2010, um, there were so many, basically anybody, any dark-skinned person in the streets of Spain was likely to be stopped by the cops if they appeared in a bus station or or a railway station. Um, There were plainclothes police all over the place, so much so that the... um, the American, the State Department had to warn Afro-Americans that if they went to Spain, they had a very good chance of being picked up um, by the police. Um, at that time, it, it was revealed that year that a local police station in Madrid was under instructions to arrest people by quota, by nationality, so many Moroccans every month. Moroccans preferably because they were easier to deport. So this kind of quota-driven deportation thing is another um, thing that we've seen in various countries in recent years. In France... 
um, when Sarkozy was in power. Um, the police were also given instructions that they wanted to reach a figure of 30,000 deportations of year, a year. That's the figure that um, Sarkozy said he would reach. And he almost did reach it. But sometimes what would happen is the police had only half a plane filled with people to deport. So they'd send them out again in the street looking for a particular nationality and haul them up, grab them, and then deport them so they could meet those statistics. And um, we've seen in this country as well, people like Phil Wallace and other politicians are very keen to associate themselves with this whole process very keen to boast um, that they've expelled so many people. You know, like um, It was a few years ago when I think it was either Liam Byrne or um, Phil Wallace was saying, we are deporting five, how so many migrants every eight minutes and we intend to increase that and so on. So politicians have been very keen to project this kind of image of toughness to their public. Um, and um, not only mainstream politicians... When I was last in Greece, I think it was in 2011, in those days people had heard of a party called um, Chrissy Avgi, Golden Dawn. It was known that it existed, but it was considered, um, and it was known, it wasn't just a joke party because people knew that it was actually attacking migrants. In those days, um, parts of Athens were already becoming kind of no-go areas for migrants at night. And um, if you went out in the streets, um, you, were like, you had a very good chance of being attacked by um, some of Golden Dawn's hoodlums who would um, ride around the place dressed in black on motorbikes, stabbing people in the street and so on. So this was known. But what, what has been really, truly shocking about Greece has been the fact that Golden Dawn is now the third political party in the country. At that time, um, people were more preoccupied. People on the left and people who were talking about migrant rights were more worried about this party called Laos, which was a, um, a right-wing uh, Greek nationalist party, but not like, um, not a basically avowedly Nazi party like Golden Dawn. And um, Golden Dawn, basically, in a society that has basically been in a in a state of advanced implosion as a result of the catastrophic austerity measures that have been imposed on Greece in the last two years, Golden Dawn have profited from that. Um, they have. Um, presented migration as, uh, as the explanation for everything. They present uh, mainstream politicians as being corrupt politicians in league with the EU who have basically facilitated what they call the invasion of Greece um, and the betrayal of, of Greece. Um, um, so they presented this kind of, these kind of arguments that a few years ago would probably have been ignored by many Greeks but are now becoming increasingly... Um, acceptable and mainstream. And as we were discussing beforehand, it's not the first time in history this has happened. You know, when uh, um, this recalls in some ways what took place in Germany in the early 30s, you know, when you, once again you had the disappearance of the middle class, the pauperisation of the working classes, an advanced social crisis that basically had no obvious solution to it. In that, um, in that situation, um, parties like Golden Dawn will flourish and will um, take advantage of it. And that's what's happening in Greece, um, tragically, at the moment. Um, so, Greece isn't the only country where this is happening, by the way, but Greece is the country where it's most obvious. And it's not just a question of um, the extreme right. Um, because um, even mainstream politicians now are keen to associate themselves with this whole idea of border toughness. This is the um, Greek uh, Minister of Citizens' Protection, inspected the new 12-kilometre fence that was constructed at the um, Evros border. And I think Iris probably knows more about this fence than I do, actually, because when I was there, there was no talk of any fence. 
In fact, it seemed ludicrous to have a fence because it's true that there was this 12-mile strip on the Avros border where people could pretty much walk across. But there was also the river where many people were also coming across. So um, it, did, it seemed kind of neither here nor there building a 12-kilometre fence, really, because you thought if they built one, then people were just going to cross the river, um, which no doubt they're continuing to do. But um, the Greek government wanted a fence, and um, they got a fence, and they also got Frontex as well. They had deployments of Frontex to go there. Um, a lot of this is symbolic. This, this political symbolism of borders is very important for understanding why they happen, really. I mean, the fact that you would build a fence that actually has no use, no practical use, is actually typical. I mean, I know some of these, border, some of these physical barriers do work and do have a use, so it's not always the case. But this thing here of your um, Minister for Citizen Protection having himself photographed at the border fence is a message not just sent to people trying to come in, it's sent back to the Greek population, basically. And um, politicians like him will, will say that we have to do this because otherwise Golden Dawn will basically dominate the narrative. So they present restrictions and exclusion as a way of kind of combating um, populism, combating the far right, and so on. Um, the Greek government has also proposed other things that seemed unimaginable back then in 2011, such as the, the construction of an internment camp for migrants with a capacity for 30,000 people. I'm sure I didn't, don't need to remind any of you of the kind of precedents um, that these kind of procedures have in European history. And, um, why, well, I mean, it's kind of obvious in a way, really, that in a situation like we have now, with a crisis in the Eurozone, with governments across the continent basically telling their populations that things are bad and will get worse for some time, it suits politicians to tell the public that... Um, they, that basically, to, just, to reinforce these, these barriers between natives and aliens, to associate themselves with ever more stringent border controls, even when these restrictions are futile, or even when they fly in the face of economic reality. But the more, and in my book I argued this then, and I think it seems um, even more pertinent now, that the more this process goes on, the more it threatens to undermine the political values on which the European Union is founded. Since World War II, the European project has allied itself closely with the human rights architecture that has been constructed after the war through instruments such as the Geneva Convention on Refugees and the UN Declaration of Human Rights and various other European laws that have tried to make the continent, present the continent as a place that is open, hospitable to migration and welcoming of refugees and willing to um, recognise and implement the principle of refugee protection. Yet, in its response to undocumented migration, through the construction of this border regime, Europe has often sought to, Europe and its component, individual governments, have sought to breach these commitments in practice without rejecting them in principle. And this was the background during my travels to Europe's borders, and it was impossible not to be aware of its consequences. So, the political and media vilification of migrants tends to present a generic image of the migrant. Um, as a parasitical intruder taking advantage of the generosity of the countries he or she tries to enter. That isn't what I found. Um, when I first began to research my book at a drop-in centre for destitute asylum seekers in Leeds, I was at first shocked and amazed by some of the stories that I heard from migrants, the incredible journeys that they'd had to make to get to the places where they'd found themselves. Um, the unbelievable ordeal of um, that people living 10 years in the streets of Leeds and Wakefield and so on, coming in and out of the asylum system, dealing with this kind of um, intransigent, intractable bureaucracy that really was obviously keen to exclude them for whatever justification it could find. 
Um, at first those stories shocked and amazed me, but after a while you heard so many, you almost become kind of inured to them. I mean, just, you just came across them all the time. Death, police violence, institutional callousness and indifference, racism, migrants ensnared in these incredible Kafkaesque legal procedures. Sometimes for years, men and, living, living, men and women living in squats and camps like Dust Bowl refugees from a Steinbeck novel, this is what managed migration actually means. And so I was very keen, as I said earlier, that readers should see what's at the end of the fork. Um, but exclusion and repression are not the whole story of, Europeans borders, of Europe's borders, and migrants are not just victims. They've also protested and resisted the situations in which they find themselves. And they've often been quite heroic in their determination to break through the barriers placed in front of them. One particular inspiration for me, I mean, I, and it summed up the kind of tenacity and resilience of many migrants, was a young guy I met, a young Moroccan guy, who was about 22 or 23. When I met him, he was living in a little tent in a hillside um, in the, just above the port of Igamenitsa in Greece, which is basically a major place where migrants try and get to Italy, try and smuggle themselves aboard the ferries. And it's a pretty dismal um, task, basically. You can spend weeks, sometimes months there, trying to break into the port and sneak on board a ferry. Um, and you're competing quite often with about 300 or 400 other people who are trying to do the same as you. So given the amount of police there, it's pretty difficult. Anyway, this guy had been a migrant since he was 14, and um, he was keen to go and work with his brother, who was working as a bricklayer in Milan. And so between 14 and 23, throughout that time, he'd been working abroad. He'd never stopped sending money back to his family in Casablanca. And, um, you know, that amazed me that 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 um, the kind of um, commitment he had to his family, his willingness, the risks he was willing to take to do it. And I said to him, how, what, makes you think, um, how, how, what makes you think you're going to get into Italy when all these guys around you can't do it? And he said, they're just not trying hard enough. So there are a lot of migrants like that. And if I was, you know, if you, um, from the point of view of the Daily Mail, from the point of view of many governments, that kind of migrant is a danger. That's something to, be, something to stop at all costs. Because when you have one person like that, it's okay. But for them, if you're talking in human tsunami terms, then they start thinking about invasions and so on. Um, I remember in, in Schengen, I saw a promotional video made by Frontex um, to say what Frontex does and why, it need, why they have to need it and so on. And they used the expression human surge. The only time I've ever heard um, Frontex ever say it. In fact, when I asked... Um, the executive director of Frontex, what he thought of that expression, human surge. Did he think of immigration as a human surge? He said, I'm not familiar with that expression. He may not be, but the um, Frontex video said it. They said, if we weren't doing this, if we didn't have these controls, migration would break over the continent like a huge wave, flooding it and um, basically creating huge um, widespread social dislocation, riots, you name it. So coming back to what I said before at the very beginning, the catastrophic imagination. These scenarios are constantly attached to the issue of um, migration and borders have become a kind of solution for it. So another interesting thing about borders, an inherent contradiction about them, seen from a distance, the whole idea of our borders is intended to provide a comforting boundary to a public that is anxious about the amount of people coming in. Um, these boundaries seem to define who we are, as Samuel Huntington once said, hopefully. But the interesting thing about borders, they are also meeting places between natives and aliens, between us and them. They are the place where the abstract um, enemy, if you like, that borders are trying to keep out, is they're where people actually, you actually meet the people who are trying to make these crossings. And the other interesting thing for me 
was the idea of the borderland. All these borders dissect borderland territories that sometimes have very contradictory meanings that seem to contradict the messages that the border is supposed to transmit. I was very attracted by the late Chicana um, poet Gloria Anthaldua, who uh, she had this concept of the US-Mexico borderland as a kind of dynamic cultural space in which um, she, she talked about having a special borderland identity um, that, was f- that was basically a mixture of all the different um, cultural influences that were passing through the US-Mexico border. And she used that identity in her own writing, in her own poetry, in her own essays as a kind of counterpoint to this idea of the, um, the Mexico, the US border, and the whole idea of La Frontera as being this boundary between um, different nations and so on. And I was interested to see how that idea would play out in Europe. And I, I found that uh, it often did. Um, going to Europe's borders, um, looking at the kind of cultural mosaic of the borderlands, speaking to the people who actually lived in them, you often found um, a very different concept of what it meant to be European, to be Greek, to be Turkish, to be Moroccan, than the kind of very, very rigid national identities, pure identities, that are kind of promulgated again and again in um, anti-immigration politics. So I also found, of course, another aspect of the borderlands is that you have people in them who are constantly doing things for migrants, working with them, working with them to help keep them alive, um, helping to um, defend their political rights, agitating for their political rights, and so on, a whole range of different organizations of political and religious persuasions. I found that, when I talked about uh, the readers seeing the end of their fork, I didn't want readers to choke on what they found. Um, without, I didn't want to kind of offer a happy ending scenario to this, but nevertheless I wanted to show people that um, exclusion, repression is not the whole story and not all Europeans accept it. So um, lastly then, um, this process of European borders, um, we've had all kinds of different attempts to draw the map of Europe um, going back centuries. Um, one of the interesting things about the, Euro- about the borders of the European Union, as opposed to, say, um, the US-Mexico border, is um, these borders, these hard borders of Europe, surround a territorial space, but the actual meaning, the identity that supposedly is within it has yet to be defined. In the past, people have tried to kind of say that, I don't know, Europe was Christian, and that was what defined Europe, it was Christian. Then people have tried to say it's liberal democratic. Hitler tried to say it was racial. So this, this latest, what, we're, what we're seeing now, the Schengen borders, the hardened borders of the European Union, are the latest attempt in a long, long um, historical process of trying to define what Europe is and who should be within it and who should be outside it. Um, and I argue that in the borderland, if we look at the borderland rather than the border, we can discover the possibility of a different and less rigid notion of national identity that is ultimately more relevant to the 21st century than the relics of 19th century nationalism and which more accurately reflects the simple fact that nations, like people, are not just one thing but composed of many different things. Thanks. We'll just go come down to the discussion. Thank you very much.